Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to the third of the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have words on the screen. Uh, you know, when I preach, I don't feel too tied to just only talking about Luke 8. I want to bring in lots of scriptures, so maybe it will be helpful just to stare at the screens. But if you do not have a copy of a Bible and a readable English translation, we would be honored to gift you one. Um, we think it's a really big deal to be reading from the primary documents when you can. So Luke chapter 8. So Jesus, uh, if you read through his teaching, so there's a lot about Jesus that's out there. But if you actually go to just his teaching, which I would suggest that you do, I don't know how much you know uh, about Jesus. But if what you have encountered is more cultural or more uh, secondary, go to the primary. You know, don't, don't just listen to the rumors. Go listen to the guy himself and see what he has taught. If you, if you jump into what Jesus actually teaches... Uh, he makes a pretty good case. He, he says that he will die and then rise from the dead. Uh, and then he did. Uh, really. He, he really did die exactly how he said he would. And then he really did, of his own, get back up. Uh, that's a pretty good case to start for why you should hear what he has to say. He's the guy who can fix death. Now, I don't know about you, uh, our family from where Rachel works, she can kind of see out our front window to the driveway. Uh, and when people come and ring the doorbell with like clipboards, <laughs> she just like recedes into the background. We never answer. The dog goes nuts and she just endures the loud dog barking because she would rather hear that than hear whatever sales presentation this person's going to have. Because whatever it is they're selling, uh, we don't want it. When Jesus comes and says, here's what I have to offer, when you have a Christian coming with a clipboard telling you about what Jesus has done, they're not offering to clean your windows or give you solar panels. What they're offering is to fix death. Man, that's a quite compelling case. It's something that I want. So you look past that and you go, okay, well, tell me more. What else does Jesus teach? Well, Jesus is kind of our, our source in the New Testament for the doctrine of hell, too. So you hear what he's saying about death, and you hear what he's saying about life, and then you hear what he says about hell. The word for hell, Gehenna, that is used in the New Testament, it's not the only word for hell, but the word for hell that is Gehenna in the New Testament is used 12 times. And do you know who uses it 11 of those times? Yeah, Jesus. They're red letters. The 12th time is James, James, brother of Jesus, and he's writing in his. And he was talking about the fire that's on all of our tongues being from hell. So uh, not only should you watch what you say, but you should also pray for the teaching ministry <laughs> of Hope Church. Don't think I don't read that and uh, shiver a little bit. But 11 times the concept of hell in Scripture happens. It comes from the mouth of Christ. So he teaches about something that's more death than just physical death. Then, you keep reading about what he teaches. He also teaches about a God who wants to adopt, wants to save people from death and bring them to life. But the way that he understands death and life and the way that he understands hell and heaven is not just primarily pleasure and pain. He's describing primarily a relationship. That hell would be a place without God. And being a place without God would be a place of burning. Would be a place of torment. 
Heaven being a place with God would be a place of pleasure, would be a place of love, would be a place where joy is air. It's just what you breathe because you're finally back where you're supposed to be. And in that way, Jesus stands with the Jewish teaching for millennia. That's exactly what the Jews have always taught and believed, that God made us, that we have separated ourselves from him by our disobedience, but that a plan of salvation is taking place for God to bring those people, not from brokenness to wholeness, and meaning by that that they just are more productive, or that they just do better with love, or that they just are less, like, less sinful. What he means by broken to wholeness is back in relationship with himself. And so as Jesus is teaching, he's teaching about an adoption that can take place. There's a fixing that can take place where you go back into relationship with the Lord and you say, okay, well, that sounds good, but as soon as somebody says something like that, you bring with you kind of an assumption of how we as humans do stuff like that. Because Jesus is teaching, he's not saying that you have to work for God's approval. Have you ever been in a relationship where you've had to work for approval? It makes sense on a sports team. I mean, there's only so many guys playing at any given time. You want to be on the court, it's not because the coach likes you, or not on good teams, you know. <laughs> on good teams, it's because you're the best guy for that situation. It makes sense in a job. In a job, you should work for approval. That payment is like the, the honoring of a contract that happens every two weeks. You, you should do well. You should perform well. And if your performance slumps, well, ladies and gentlemen, there's, there's options, right? There's things that might happen. But that is a terrible way to parent. To tell your kids, hey, I would love to love you, but you're going to have to work for it. Man, I would love to make your life so fun. Unfortunately, we're just going to have to look at your performance. And, uh, we, you know, we can't be there right now. But if we got some stuff, we're hoping you'll implement, and then we'll see where we get. You know, happy meals are in your future. You're like, that's a terrible way to parent. It's a terrible way to be married. That somebody would have to gain your approval in order to experience your love. And yet, all too often, it's exactly how people parent, and it's exactly how people have relationships with each other. And so when they think about the Lord, they expect exactly that kind of relationship. But instead, Jesus is saying that, no, he has come in order to pay the debt so that God can love you and change you, rather than change you so he can love you. That order is tremendously important. And yet, I think that order is also what becomes the sticking point for people, because it sounds really good. I'm telling you that there's a thing you're made for. I'm telling you that there's not just a thing, but a person that you're made for, and that he loves you, and he has removed all barriers. And you go, great! But he's also going to be your Lord. Like him being your savior is you saying yes, but you're saying yes to an adoption. An adoption has strings. I'm not saying conditions. You don't have to, there's not things you have to pay off before you can be adopted. But when you're adopted, you become part of this new family. You have to jump into that minivan. You have to eat what that mom makes. You have to do what that family does. You're now part of that family. And that's the sticking point. See, I think when Jesus taught... There were many who rejected him because they, they understood what he was saying. And that's what I want to see with you today. We talk about joy. There's, there's also joy that sounds really joyful, but it doesn't actually work out. 
There's actually joy that, that leads you away from the Lord and not to him. And Jesus teaches us about it. We're going to look at this parable today in Luke chapter 8. But it's a parable that's about parables. It's a teaching that's about teaching. And it helps us to understand Jesus' main message. When he says, Luke chapter 8, starting verse 4. Luke writes, And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to Jesus, he said to them in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, parables. Parables happen all the time in Jesus' teaching. They are great stories. They help you to understand if somebody can explain them a little bit. Because if I just told you that story right there, I think you overestimate how much previous Christian teaching plays into your understanding. I think if you just heard this, and even if you were a farmer, I'm not, even if you knew about the agricultural kind of underpinning of this parable... I think it would still be difficult for you to come to a deep understanding of what's being said there. However, Jesus, in kindness, explains what he said. Look at verse 11. If you skip down just a little bit in Luke chapter 10, he says, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 8, he says, Now the parable is this. He's going to now explain to us what connects to what. The seed is the word of God. Okay, much better. The teaching is like throwing out seed. It's like taking something live and spitting it out into the world. If you take stones, little pebbles, and throw them out onto a field, you'd be an idiot to come back and hope to see plants. You may see weeds, but that was nothing to do with your stone throwing. But that's not what a seed is. It's not a pebble, is it? It may be hard like a pebble. It may be small like a pebble. But the difference is life potentiality. That as that seed hits ground, it doesn't stay dead, uh, just some little hard dead thing. It becomes something alive. It goes down and up and it produces something. Often something delicious, something life-giving, something fragrant, something beautiful. Jesus is saying his teaching is exactly like that. And you go, okay, but who is this that's teaching? We got the seed. Who is the sower? Well, Jesus He's teaching as he's talking about teaching. Yeah, it's not only Jesus, it's also his disciples. We'll get to that next week as he sends his disciples out. But we also know that it's the the writers of the Gospels. That's what they are. We call them the evangelists. When you read it in the Greek, it's the the evangel according to Matthew or according to Luke. Luke becomes one of these dispensers of teaching. And you and I now are given the responsibility of also doing that same task, of taking that same teaching and spreading it out into the world. How do we then do that? Is it just about the teaching, or do we have the teaching and a sword? There's other faiths, and there's been times in the Christian faith where people have tried to use the sword to insist that people accept the teaching. Is that how it works? No. Do you take not a physical sword, but sort of an emotional one? And and we use a lot of charisma 
And we use a lot of like overwhelming personality and that's what makes somebody receive this teaching? Well, no. How do we do it? Well, real quick, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. This is a really important text for us at Hope Church. If you want to understand Hope Church, you should understand these verses. This is Timothy getting a letter from the Apostle Paul. And Paul is telling him how he is supposed to be a teacher. He says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Dang it! Right? But it's there. (laughs) To everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Listen, if you're fasting with us in the month of February, we're going to focus on our multiplication. And that's going to involve conversations about how we do multiplication. Especially in a valley like this. The the idea that you're willing out of boldness or out of some level of (laughs) pumping yourself up and actually sharing the gospel, you actually do it. Well, that's great. But let's also talk about how you do it. Whether or not you have this kind of gentleness, this kind of love, and this kind of truth, this kind of rigidity. Okay. But the four soils are not just talking about the teaching The four soils are talking about the type of hearers. The four soils go back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the sermon about Jesus' message. Not only his message, but the way in which his message is received. Or, maybe more to the point of the parable, how his message is rejected. The four soils. The first type of soil is the path. Again, verse uh, verse 12, Jesus is explaining how this, this first place where the seed lands is hardened. It's a path. He says in verse 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. He says some are hardened. That's what a path is. A path is stomped on all the time with wagons that run along it all the time. As the word hits the path, as the seed hits the path, it skitters. It doesn't stop. It doesn't drop. It skitters along until the next person comes and stomps on it. Or the next cow comes and walks on it. Or the birds come and eat it. The seed doesn't have an effect because the seed doesn't go down. Well, what is that hardening? Uh, A pastor named James Montgomery Boyce said, What is that that makes the human heart hard? There can be only one answer. Sin. Sin hardens the heart. And the heart is hardened, that is hardened, sins even more. Spiral. What's he describing? Well, when we say sin, we mean disobedience to God. And you go, oh, Ten Commandments. Got it. Well, yeah. But if you understand the Ten Commandments, you understand what's in the Ten Commandments, you understand what the first thing on the list of the Ten Commandments is then you understand that really it comes back to this conversation about relationship because what God cares about most is your connection with him. That there are actually examples of people throughout the scriptures who are immensely obedient to what seems like the Ten Commandments and yet their hearts are far from God. And then there are people who seem to be breaking a lot of commandments. they got a real dirty, loose life, but that life is changing pretty consistently because their heart is actually close to the Lord. 
What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that when we talk about sin, we talk about your relationship with the Father, the way that you understand your love of the Father. It's your connection to the Father. When we talk about sin, we're talking about the opposite of a connection to Him or a coldness towards Him. It's the desire to see Him as a, a stranger. It's the temptation to see Him as an interferer. you got a great thing going. You're trying to build this lovely tower of your own name. And he keeps coming in and he keeps sniping you. He keeps trying to point you to his own kingdom that he's building. When you're trying to build your kingdom, he's, he's an, an, an interferer. He's an officious judge. He's insisting on all these little picadillos. When you're just trying to do you, he's, he's an unjust tyrant. You know, he keeps slamming that big stick he's got down and demanding that you do what he says. But huh, do you feel that? Maybe you can feel it culturally and then slowly allow yourself to admit whether or not you feel it personally. Man, I'll say Jesus' words here. The big problem that many people have may seem like theology or history. And if it is, fantastic. Oh my gosh, if you're rejecting Jesus because of questions about theology or the history of the church, can I tell you how nice the coffee is I will buy you? I will buy you the nicest meal that I can find that you might sit and tell me those problems. Because I think we've got answers for them. Not me personally, but I can be kind of like a librarian. I can find the information and try to humbly submit it to you about why other people who have had that same problem have overcome that problem. But I don't think that that's really the problem for a lot of people. It may seem like it, but if we start stripping some of those questions back, we get to something that, that I think is the harder piece of it. Why might you choose death over life? Well, a guy named George MacDonald echoes Christianity throughout the millennia. Milton, Augustine, Paul, he says, The one principle of hell is, I am my own. If you say yes to God about everything except for that, you said no to him. And that's what I think Jesus is saying when he talks about this soil that has hardened itself to the word. He then talks about a rocky soil. These are people that I have a lot of sympathy for. He says in verse 13, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word of God, receive it with joy. But they have no root. And so they believe for a while, and in the time of testing, they fall away. We might call this the test of pain, that, that there are people who seem to be Christian. Many of you in this room seem to be Christian. But if, when things become very difficult, when the idea of following Christ is not appealing, it doesn't turn into more job opportunities, it doesn't come with like a hotter prospect for dating, but, but makes things harder, it says then, in a time of testing, they fall away. Joy is a possibility in Christianity, but it's not an easy thing. First Peter, he says, in this you rejoice. Talking about the gospel, please go home today if you have time and read the first five verses of First Peter. But in this description of the gospel, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith not a conversion to something that made your life sound really nice and happy. So it was really a conversion to respectability or a conversion to better uh, uh, 
people you might marry prospects or people that you might get hired by prospects. But instead, you have a genuine, tested, genuine faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's coming. And again, I I feel a lot of sympathy to people that are right here because if you've walked with other Christians for any period of time, then you have seen other people deal with really tough stuff that if you had to deal with, you have no idea how you would deal with it. You've watched people have to embrace Christ, but to embrace Christ meant quitting. Quitting something or quitting someone. And you got a lot of sympathy. You're going to tell them what the Lord has said. It's not you that gets to just sort of negotiate for the Father on who gets to say what and who gets to bring what into his kingdom. It's his job and his rules. But as you're watching this interaction, as you're trying to steward in some way this interaction between somebody and the Father, the suffering that they're enduring and the Lord, you can feel a lot of sympathy. You can wonder how things would be in your own heart. Well, let me just tell you, the Lord's big. (laughs) Like, he can handle it. Read the end of Job sometime. Read the beginning of Job sometime. But then read the end of Job sometime. And see if God's got big enough pants to deal with your accusations. Man, read the end of the Gospels. Read the whole of the Gospels. But read the end of the Gospels and see if he hasn't also suffered while you suffer. I'm not telling you that you're wrong because I'm right. I'm just trying to humbly point you and say, listen, if you you feel like quitting right now, if you are so disappointed in a God who should have made things differently, who allowed you, he's a good God, and yet he allowed this in your life, and you're ready to walk away, don't. The crowds walk away, the disciples stay. Are you going to walk away also? No. Why? Well, because Jesus, you're the only ones with the words of life. That may be the only reason that you stay. But if you stay, I promise that he is a God who has suffered with you and suffered for you. He is a God who's big enough to redeem the awful situation you're in. Don't. Don't walk away. If you haven't had the temptation yet, well, it's coming. Don't walk away. There's a third soil too, and it's, it's maybe a test of pleasure rather than a test of pain. Look at verse 14. He says, And as for those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked. By what? By the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. What? You mean we have to avoid pleasure and avoid pain? Well, no, but you have to say yes to the Lord despite pain and despite pleasure. Do you look at other people and think that they have walked away from the Lord and you think their rejection of the Lord is such a pity and yet in your own life your rejection of the Lord is exactly the same except for in its timing it's just a slow motion rejection of the Lord like you've not come to the pinch yet but on a daily basis you become more comfortable and more wealthy and more established Watch. Go talk to college students. College students are ready to, like, die. And you're like, you don't know what I just said. I I was saying, like, in Indonesia, they poison you, but, you know, we need people to go to Indonesia. And they're like, yes! Today! It's like, okay, but you won't have health insurance. So, like, I never did! You know? (laughs) 
They don't, they don't have any wisdom, right? That's really the problem. You say they're so brave. It's like, no, no. <laughs> it's not brave if you don't understand the question, right? <clears throat> but what about when you talk to somebody that's 35 or 45? They're not just homeowners, but they're watching as they're actually building some wealth now. You know, you talk to them and they have preferences. Why? Well, because they can afford to be a little discerning on their pleasures. Uh Uh-oh. That's like a calcification. It's a hardening that takes place. And they say, this is what I like. This is what I love. And if there comes a point where the Lord says, all right, now we're going this way. Do they follow? Or is their love really something else now? I mean, in Luke 6, we talked about last week, he had all of these blessings and he said, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven for so the fathers did to the prophets. And we go, mm, ouch, okay, yes. What I didn't read, look at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, not blessed, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Is your LinkedIn profile just like awesome? You got no problems with the world? That's a problem. Woe. Joy is world-changing. The joy of your salvation is worth anything. But joy in that way is often difficult. Pleasure is often available. And the enemy has spent the entirety of human history taking God's pleasures and sowing our understanding of those pleasures with all kinds of snares and traps. So that we don't engage with the pleasures God gave in God's way. But we attempt to take God's pleasures in ways, in quantities, at times that he knows would just ruin them and ruin you. C.S. Lewis, and he, he talks a lot about joy. He's got an autobiography about him coming to faith that's called Surprised by Joy. And I think I should be complimented for going two weeks without quoting C.S. Lewis. But here we go. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. It says, Joy, in the technical sense in which he's used it in the book to this point, has indeed one characteristic, and one only, in common with happiness and pleasure. The fact that anyone who has experienced joy will want it again. Apart from that, and considered only in its quality... It might also equally well be called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. Joy can feel like unhappiness or grief because you're not home yet. Because what you enjoy is still a a promise. It's an already, but it's a not yet. But then it's a kind of pain, a kind of unhappiness or grief that you're willing to accept. that, That even maybe is a sweetness to it. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted real joy would ever, if both were in his power exchange it for all the pleasures of the world. But then joy is never in our power. And pleasure often is. It doesn't take a lot of success for you to have some options. Joy is better, but pleasure 
is easier. Lastly, there's one more soil to consider, and it's the good soil. Verse 15. And as for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Now, if you're actually a Christian, you're in kind of a sticky spot here because when you read this, you go, oh, no. (laughs) Something about the quality of becoming a Christian adds a little bit of humility to your life and adds a great deal of God's desires in your life. And so you look out on the world and you look at your life and you realize that you are so much less productive than you want to be. (laughs) And so you think, man, I can't be the good soil because I'm just not producing anything like the fruit that I would want to see. And the irony of standing there looking at Jerusalem like Christ and weeping his tears over those that have rejected is that you think then that you must not be a Christian. Well, okay, let the community jump in with you. It's fruit with patience. There's a guy named Klein Snodgrass. Ah, You know, it sounds like a bad guy in like a Roald Dahl novel or something. But Klein Snodgrass is actually a really wonderful New Testament scholar. Uh, He may still be alive. But he says, the parable... Is about hearing that leads to productive living. And adapting the parable will mean enabling people to move past merely hearing the words, even with joy, to a hearing that captures the whole person. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about being this final soil, this soil that continues. Are you a soil that will continue? Are are you producing fruit and you go, gosh, not enough. Okay, well, let the community stand around you over a period of time so that other people can look in your life and go, yes, you are. Because the enemy wants to just dominate you with discouragement. But let other Christians stand around you and go, whoa, you're a turd now. But when we met you, oh my gosh, the Lord is producing so much fruit. We may have to edit that word. I don't know if that's an expletive or not. But we have have seen God change you so thoroughly. No, you are not the Apostle Paul. Yes, the Lord is bearing fruit through you. Man, you need the community to do that. You're uniquely blessed by the people of God when they do that. And yet, I'm saying all this stuff, and I know that Jesus also says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does that mean? Well, verses 9 and 10, when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. I know we're out of time, but this matters. Because I think when we read this, it, it allows you to see your heart towards God and how quickly you accuse God. Because as soon as you read this, you go, oh, that trickster. He's offering with one hand, and he knows that he's going to withhold with the other. He's saying, here's my teaching, but he knows that unless you have ears to hear, you're never going to respond, that, that there's some sort of trap here. Is that what Jesus is saying? If you've ever read it before, maybe you've been tempted that way, or maybe it's just me. But, of course, and in Mark, when he has this story about the, the, the parable of the sower in Mark, he, he then teaches and says, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He then quotes again from Isaiah. And what he says is what's true, which is that if you speak the word of God, some will hear and many will reject. If you you hear, you might receive it. But if you've already tuned this out, What are you doing? Jesus is not trying to hide the gospel. 
Parables are great ways to teach. And there's a reason that he explains it and then has Luke write down the explanation and then has all the Christians from all of the last millennia take that and translate it into however many languages they can find and hand it out and tell people. And that's why Jesus commanded his disciples to go from the highest mountain to the most dark jungle to share the gospel with every single person. He's not hiding the message. But many will reject the message. Is that you? Man, listen. Jesus knew that some would respond to that gospel, that you can be forgiven, (laughs) that you can be adopted. But he also knew that many would reject it. Don't be that person. In his words are life, but there's also life in no other name. If you don't believe that, you might need a Solomon period where you go and try some of this other stuff and watch as the idols crumble. If you're good enough at it, you'll get to that idol quick enough and realize that it crumbles. If you're bad at it, then you'll just keep thinking, maybe I'll work harder, maybe I'll do better, and then money will satisfy, and then beauty will satisfy. But what he's saying is there's life in no other name. Will you receive that, even if it means he's in charge and you're not? Will you come back? Maybe you're here this morning and you've had Christianity, but you've also had pain. And you look at that God and say, what a cheat. It's a bait and switch, man. Yeah, I'm here for mom and dad, but I can tell you that none of this is real. Well, (laughs) yes, it is. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a moment. The Lord's Supper commemorates Christ's suffering on your behalf. I don't have the answer to why your situation happened, but I do know that he does. And looking at the whole of human existence, even though it meant his own crucifixion, he said yes. So there's a glory to be revealed. And Paul, with stripes on his back and anxiety in his heart, could still say that this suffering that we endure is light and momentary and preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. Listen, are you, are you unproductive? Are you tipping Christianity while enjoying your nice little garden of pleasures? Stop. Reject that. Submit to the Lord and maybe even a little bit to his church. You know, we talk about membership and people don't have any idea what we're even talking about. The church is a service. You show up and we give you a service and you respond to it, and you sample it, you compare it to the other services available, and you continue to grace us with your presence if the service continues to please. Well, it won't. Yeah, we're going to do what we can. It won't. You are to submit to the Lord, and His structure includes a church. Not necessarily me or the pastors of Hope Church, but yeah, you know, kind of a little bit. Read the Word. Tell me I'm wrong. But if you're rejecting because you want to continue to have your independence, I warn you, I warn you, is it possible you're one of these soils? And then lastly, man, you can be productive. You can be his. (laughs) And it can feel awful. It can be really hard. And the enemy is going to tell you that you're not. But that's what the Lord has come to bring. Right now we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for those that have said yes to Jesus. It's for fourth soils. 
And you go, that sounds really exclusive. Well, you know, it's not my supper. It's the Lord's supper, and that's how we put it together. When we take it, we're going to take the juice, and we're going to remember that we drink something sweet because he drank something infinitely bitter. We're going to break the bread, and we're going to eat it. We're going to think about the table we have access to one day with the Father because his body was broken. And so if you haven't received that sacrifice yet, then I just ask you to not take the Lord's Supper and instead just ask some questions about this stuff. Do you believe it or not? Do you want to take the Lord's Supper or not? And why? Maybe you'd be open to to a believer that you know helping you kind of think through that. But if you are a believer, let me just ask you to repent this morning and to anticipate that you would go through the whole of the gospel, both seeing your sin and in confessing it, but also enjoying the Lord's grace and savoring it. What we're going to do, I'm going to pray, the band's going to play, and then you can come and get the elements, take them back to your seat, and then we'll take Lord's Supper together in a moment. Lord and Heavenly Father, I pray by your grace that you would take the words that we've spoken this morning, and Lord, that they would be first your words, that the things I've said that I've added out of just ignorance or sin, Lord, that you would please eliminate from our minds and memories, but instead, Lord, that you would take what you have said and what you have stewarded through the last two millennia and you would take that seed and you would plant it deep deep in our hearts today, Father. That there would be many who would be good soil today for your glory. As we pray to take the Lord's Supper, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the grace to confess, to see through the different lies of the enemy, that we would call sin, sin, but then we would also receive Forgiveness, Father. We wouldn't stay in that condemnation, but with Romans 8, Father, we would excitedly profess um, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Lord, be glorified today. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.